Well, hell was once a Bible doctrine that people believed in, uh, that people feared. Hell was never far from Christians' minds or absent from serious conversations that they would have. But times have changed. The American church historian Martin Martyr says, Hell disappeared and no one noticed. Alan Bernstein is professor of medieval history at the University of Arizona. He says, Hell today is enveloped in silence. He wrote that in an article titled, Thinking About Hell. Even even among evangelicals, there's been a noticeable absence of the theology of hell. The respectable theologian Donald Bloch says, The doctrine of hell has passed out of conversation and preaching, even in conservative evangelical churches. Still, uh, hell has not really disappeared in reality, as much as it's been ignored or maybe redefined, or as one man put it, lampooned, which means ridiculed or made fun of. The idea of hell has become a caricature with cartoons and funny looking devils with pitchfork that no one really goes uh, to that place. Jeffrey Scheller wrote that the netherworld has taken on a new image, more of a deep funk than a pit of fire. A lot of people think of hell as simply earthly infernos that get all the tension. Some would say hell means holocaust. And recently I listened to a Jocko podcast where he was interviewing a a sweet woman who was a survivor of Auschwitz that that really said that uh, the, the Holocaust was hell. And as horrible as it is, or suffering in Haiti, Russ Duhart wrote in Case for Hell that if it's hard for the modern mind to understand why a good God would allow such misery on a temporal scale... Imagine one who would allow eternal suffering seems not only offensive, but absurd. And so when I understand, man, there's tough stuff that happens here. So why would God cause some sort of other suffering that's even worse and even longer? It's a bit offensive to me and it actually seems absurd. Uh, A liberal theologian named Clark Pinnock wrote, Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been. Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than God, or at least by any moral standards and by the gospel itself. If you were to do a quick internet search for quotes about hell, there'd be millions of results and some of them are, the, are these. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote in The Brothers Karamazov, What is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. Aldous Huxley says, Maybe this world is another planet's hell. Oscar Wilde said, We are each our own devil and we make this world our hell. John Paul Sartre in No Exit says, Hell is other people. T.S. Eliot says, What is hell? Hell is oneself. Hell is alone. The other figures in it merely projections. There is nothing to escape from, and nothing to escape to. One is always alone. Edgar Allan Poe says there are moments 
when even in the sober eye of reason, the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of hell. Victor Hugo says, an intelligent hell would be better than a stupid paradise. Arthur Rimbaud, I believe I am in hell, therefore I am. Ludwig Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, hell isn't other people, hell is yourself. In Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte records an uh, interaction where it said, no sight so sad as that of a naughty child, he began, especially a naughty little girl. Do you know where the wickedest go after death? They go to hell, was my ready and orthodox answer. And what is hell? Can you tell me that? A pit full of fire. And should you like to fall into that pit and to be burning there forever? No, sir. What must you do to avoid it? I deliberated a moment. My answer when it did come was objectionable. I must keep in good health and not die. And many of you, when you think of eternity and you think of, you know, if there is a possibility of hell, how would I escape it? And right now, perhaps you would say, man, I just got to keep in good health and not die. And I might escape such an end. It's often said that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible, which is true. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. It's found 12 times in the New Testament, and it's always translated as hell. You take a trip to Israel and you learn what Gehenna is. It means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, when you're outside of Jerusalem, is a valley not far from the Temple Mount and the Temple Walls. Uh, where it was a rubbish pile. It was the dump. It was a place where they burnt garbage. It was a place where these garbage worms never died. They always ate on the sustenance from the, from the uh, refuse. Uh, the fire never stopped burning. It was always burning the garbage. And it was a place where the leper colonies would often congregate and flock to to escape from society, to escape from the public. They were banished to the Valley of Hinnon. And Jesus uses that very relevant geographical location just outside of Jerusalem to give a picture of what this eternal place of torment is. Christ uses the word Gehenna uh, 11 times in the Gospels. And once it's used in James chapter 3, verse 6 to refer to the actions of the tongue. Listen to some things that Jesus had to say about hell. Christ warned his listeners to be afraid of Gehenna. Christ claimed only God has the power to cast humans into it. Christ said that both the soul and the actual body could enter Gehenna. The unsaved could go there with two eyes, two hands, and two feet. It's a place marked by fire in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. It's a place that was prepared originally not for people, but for the devil and for his angels. When summarizing the teachings of Jesus on hell using Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, Don Whitney uses this to describe hell. He says, hell is real. Hell is separation from God. Hell is for all of the, quote, accursed ones. Hell is eternal. Hell is fire. Hell is a prepared place. Hell is eternity with the devil and his angels, whom it was originally prepared for. Hell is inevitable if you never come to Jesus. Hell is inescapable. Once you're there. But the beautiful thing is that hell is avoidable. If you will come to Jesus, believe in the gospel, turn from your sins and receive forgiveness that's found in Jesus, that he purchased with his precious blood when he died on the cross. 
When you look at these passages, and including Luke 16, 19 through 31, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it becomes clear that Jesus believed that hell was a real place. He leaves no room for the, doc- the doctrine of universalism that teaches that all will eventually be saved, or the theology of annihilationism, which is the teaching that those who are lost will simply cease to exist and vanish. We know that Jesus believed in hell because he taught it. But we can also look at the actions of Jesus, specifically the cross of our Lord, to know he believed in it. Listen to what Robert Murray McShane, the great preacher, wrote. He said, the dying of the Lord Jesus is the most awakening sight in the world. Why did that lovely one that was from the beginning, the brightness of his father's glory and the express image of his person degrade himself so much as to become a small, quote, corn of wheat, which is hidden under the earth and dies. Why did he lie down in the cold, rocky sepulcher? Would Christ have wept over Jerusalem if there'd been no hell beneath it? Would he have died under the wrath of God if there were no wrath to come? Oh, triflers with the gospel and polite hearers who say often, Sir, we would see Jesus, but who never find him? Go to Gethsemane, see his unspeakable agonies. Go to Golgotha, see the vial of wrath poured upon his breaking heart. Go to the sepulcher or the tomb and see the corn of wheat laid dead in the ground. Why all this suffering in the spotless one if there is no wrath coming on the unsheltered unbelieving head. And so the coming of Jesus into this fallen world and the bloody cross that he died upon testifies that there is indeed a hell. There's one major objection to be addressed before uh, investigating just our short text today. And the question is asked, why would a good God punish forever a finite offense that happened at a particular moment in time. It seems a bit unjust and quite a bit out of proportion. I think the answer is twofold. First, a sin against God is a lot more serious than you might imagine. I think many of our problems when we think about hell is that we don't really get how depraved our sin is, how, how horrible an offense against God is. Sin is not just a slap in the face of a little mouse. It's rebellion against the king of the universe. And the second thing about this question addressing it would be what Russell Moore says when he says, hell is the final handing over of the rebel to who he wants to be. And it is awful. The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral. We must not imagine the damned displaying gospel repentance and a longing for the presence of Christ. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, in hell, one is now handed over the full display of his nature apart from God's grace. And this nature is seen to be satanic, John 8.44 says. The condemnation continues forever and ever because sin does too. So to understand the doctrine of hell, you've got to understand really how bad sin is, but also how holy God is, how glorious he is, how, uh, how perfectly spotless he is, and how he cannot be in the presence of sin. H.A. Ironside said nearly a a century ago, the condemnation now is that men reject the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made full atonement for their sin in order that 
all might be freed through, uh, from wrath through him. The book of Hebrews says that if you trample uh, the blood of the covenant under your feet and count it as some common thing, there's no forgiveness of sins for you. And for those that are in hell that have rejected the blood of the covenant, that is Jesus' blood that would forgive their sin, there's no forgiveness for their sin either. And so let's get into chapter uh, uh, 20, verse 11, and see, why is Rory going on about hell in the first place? What's the text have to do with this? Well, we are towards the end of the book of Revelation, and it's, this is after the church age of chapters 2 and 3. This is after the rapture of the church in chapter 4 and the throne room of God scenes in chapter 4 and 5. This is after chapters 6 through 19, the great tribulation period where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world for seven years. This is after Jesus comes back at the end of that seven-year period and vanquishes his enemies. Uh, This is after he comes back to the earth and rules and reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's called the millennial reign. This is after he had put Satan in prison for that thousand year period and then released him to lead one final rebellion in which it squashed right away. That's the beginning of chapter 20 today. This is after all of those things. And now at the end of the millennial reign, the king of the universe judges people's sins judges people who have never trusted in him and received his forgiveness, they will be condemned. And so that's, that's where we're at in kind of the, the quick timeline of the book of Revelation. And it says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. The word then there kind of sets up the context that I just set out. This follows the millennial reign and the defeat of the devil. This is a good time in human history, you guys. This is the devil who is bad is gone. Uh, We've never seen anything like this uh, in the universe before. This is an incredible time frame. But it's also a place where a vision of a great white throne is seen. John MacArthur calls this the most serious sobering and tragic passage in the entire Bible. It's a great passage with a great white throne. This white symbolizes holiness and purity of the one who sits on it. And the one who sits on it, the one who is presiding over this gloomy event is none other than Jesus. Very quickly, I'd like to roll through a couple passages, and I'm just going to touch on sections of those passages to show us that it's actually Jesus sitting on this throne, the God-man Jesus, and he will be judging the world for their sins. In John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. John 5.26 and 27, as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is Jesus who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In Acts chapter 17, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a good word for us today too. God's overlooked the past times of ignorance, but now he's calling you to repent, to turn from your sins. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which the judge, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. That's Jesus. He has given assurance to all of this by that man's resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter two, verse 15 says, actually, if you just go to verse 16, There will be a day that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearance and his kingdom. So King Jesus sits on the eternal throne in judgment. Uh, Jeff Lezine from uh, Greg Laurie's Harvest Ministries writes, 
We can't help but think of how people sat in judgment of Jesus when he was on the earth. Caiaphas, Annas, Herod, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, the Romans, and the religious leaders all passed judgment on Jesus. Imagine how they'll feel at this moment when one by one they appear before Christ whom they crucified and who still bears the marks of his crucifixion. They rejected him as their savior And now they will face him as their judge. He who once hung on Calvary's cross is now to be the judge of the living and the dead. And it says that on this throne, it was from whose face, so it's from Jesus, that the face of the earth and the heaven fled away. In the presence of Jesus, in his glory, heaven and earth disappear quickly. They become invisible. There's found no place for them. There's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to hide. In fact, it kind of brings up some stuff we're going to study in the next couple chapters of, of the new heaven and the new earth. And what does it mean that the old heaven is, is gone away and, and there's a, a purifying fire that happens? Let's not get into that today. We're going to get into that. Uh, in the next couple of weeks. But some have called this moment here before the great white throne judgment, the uncreation of the universe, the destruction and the dissolving of the universe. In a sense, you can run, but you can't hide. But here at the great white throne judgment, you can't run and you can't hide. In verse 12, it says that I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Starting out in this verse, John the Revelator sees the dead. These are the unbelieving dead, people who never put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus wasn't their Lord. Jesus wasn't their Savior. They are the dead of all of history. Um, past and present and future, who never trusted in the gospel. All of the dead, whether they were small or whether they were great. We know that this is what is called the second resurrection of the dead. It's never explicitly stated that. We saw a few weeks ago of the first resurrection, uh, anyone who is uh, who dies in Christ Jesus will be resurrected to be with him in his kingdom And the second resurrection is this moment right here where the dead, small and great, uh, we're going to see in just a little bit, even the sea giving up its dead, uh, they're all standing before God, just as in a trial in our day and age, when it's time for the verdict and it's time past the verdict, it's time for the judgment, uh, the criminal must stand in the courtroom and receive their sentence. There's no moment for giving self-defense uh, it, it's clear that you're guilty and, and you're standing to face judgment. doesn't matter whether you're small or whether you were great in this world. Death and judgment are the great equalizer. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. And here it's judgment day. In just a minute, we're going to see when men die twice. But right here, the first death has happened, and now it's judgment time. Very quickly, though, I want to just emphasize that this is not a judgment for Christians that we study today. The great white throne is a judgment for non-Christians, non-believers, the unregenerate, the unsaved, those who've never been born again. Now, Christians will have a judgment, but it's very different It's called the Bema Seat Judgment or the Reward Judgment. Uh, The Bema Seat Judgment is language taken from the old Olympics uh, where one receives a reward for how they did in the games. And they kind of stand on the platforms and they receive the crowns or the medals or the awards. The Bema Seat Judgment. Um, Let me just quickly show you a chart. Hopefully it shows up for you all where there's some differences between the Bema Seat Judgment for Christians and the Great White Throne Judgment for non-Christians. So here we go. We've got the issue of the Bema Seat Judgment is that it's the Judgment Seat of Christ, the Bema Seat Judgment. 
versus the great white throne judgment. The people that would be judged in these two different judgments, on this end, the Bema Seat judgment, believers only are judged who have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Whereas our text today, the great white throne judgment, it's unbelievers who only have their own self-righteousness to stand in. Key scriptures for the Bema Seat judgment would be found in Romans 14, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, where the big text for the great white throne judgment is Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The basis of the judgment in the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment's based on a faithful person to Christ, faithfulness in Christ, and resulted good works even down to the motivation of your heart and how you did those works. Over here, the basis for the judgment would be the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of the gospel, and the trusting in one's own righteousness. The result for the Bema Seat judgment would be rewards or loss of rewards, but not a loss of salvation, which is secure in Christ. The result of the great white throne judgment is eternity in hell, also known as the lake of fire. And so here we have the dead being judged, and our text goes on to say that books were opened, or scrolls were opened. So, so there's this judgment, and as the individuals are being judged, legal books are being opened. It's, it's quite formal. You know? It's interesting to look at our legal system, and, and kind of how, as we've been made in God's image We love justice and we love truth and and we want justice for all. And the Lord is all about that. And he's bringing justice home this day as he opens up a number of books. You'll notice that books is in the plural. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God. And he says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated. It's very formal. And the books were opened. So there's almost parliamentary procedure that happens in the throne room of heaven. The, The courts are seated. Books are opened. These are books of works that contain every action, every thought, every emotion of all the unsaved people. I think that one of the books that's going to be open is the law of Moses. It's going to be the Bible. It's going to be the righteous standards of God. And it is going to show how no individual that's ever lived has kept all of these standards and they must be judged accordingly. But another book was open. There's, there's another book almost in a class of its own. And it's called the book of life. Sometimes in scripture, it's called the Lamb's book of life. It's the book where everyone who's trusted in the blood of the Lamb to atone for their sins, their name is written, showing their salvation. I'm going to quickly go through some of the mentionings of this book. Like in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where we see at the end of the verse, some of Paul's fellow workers whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are ministers of the gospel alongside Paul, and their names were written in that book. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, there's this great promise for even us today in 2020, uh, Prineville, Oregon, Polina, Oregon. It says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So living in this day and age and wickedness around us, we overcome the sin and the flesh and temptations and trials by the grace of God will be clothed in white garments. And it says, Jesus is saying this, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So there's security in the book of life. Jesus will not blot our name out of the book of life. Um, in Revelation 13, 8, during the tribulation period, when the Antichrist is on the scene, people are being deceived and worshiping him. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to fall prone to this idolatrous worship. 
It's also something we notice there is that in God's sovereignty and his election and his calling, his predestination, these are all biblical words, uh, that Jesus chose whose names would be written in the Lamb's book of life before the world was even created. Uh, in Revelation chapter twenty-two, nineteen, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life. And so there's a number of passages that speak concerning this book that will be opened on the day of the great white throne judgment. Uh, we're going to see in just a little bit that really out of all the books that are opened, this is the book that matters. This is the book that kind of it all comes down to the final decision. It says here that the dead were judged according to their work. So all these books are open. Just imagine the chronicle of your life. The chronicle of your life is there. Everything you've ever done, said, thought, felt, everywhere you've gone, it's all written out uh, in, in the, the, the fashion of a chronicler. And, and then it's lined up to say the law of Moses, the righteous standards of God, the word of God, the new Testament. Uh, and, and you begin to see how, man, in your own righteousness, your life does not jive with the holiness of God. Maybe in some parts it's, it blends in, but in other parts it, it contrasts and you have a problem. Um, the, Scripture tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, that the Lord searches the hearts in his judgment. That he in Matthew 16, 17 record, uh, rewards people according to their works. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Wish I had time to read it to you all this morning. This might be good homework later on. But it speaks of uh, just the actions of your life and how the Lord will render to you according to your deeds. And don't get excited by that because the context is your deeds don't measure up. There's going to be judgment if you rest in your own good works. In Deuteronomy 28, 58, it says, if you do not carefully observe all the works of this law that are written in this book, then it'll go on to say, I will bring on you the plagues that I brought on Egypt. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 is an important verse when considering this. As many are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so Galatians also says that you can go to the law, you go to the Ten Commandments in a simple form and measure your life against them. And the commandments serve as a tutor to show you, you aren't good enough and you'll never be good enough. Even in your heart, Jesus says, you break these commandments. And I look at the heart, I test the heart. And so we begin to find out, man, in my own righteousness, I'm doomed James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 say, If you were to keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. And so you got the Ten Commandments. I know if we were to go step by step through the commandments, we would be able to show you that you've broken probably all of them multiple times in your life. But if you were to add the other 603 commands of the law of Moses, you would certainly be found to have fallen short of those as well. Not to mention all the rest of the book of the word of God. You even break one of these commandments and you're guilty of breaking all of them. Sin spreads throughout the rest of your life. And so these individuals are judged at the great white throne judgment for the deeds that they've done. They're judged according to their works. It's been said, what a sea of faces will appear before him in that solemn hour of tremendous import. All the lost of the ages, all who preferred their sin to his salvation, all who procrastinated until for them the door of mercy was closed, all who spurned his grace and in self-will chose the way that seemed right to them. It's really a somber day, and it's somber to read today. As I was praying this morning on my face in my living room, 
faces came to my mind that I'm quite certain have not known the love of Jesus and forgiveness of sins. And I picture your face standing before the great white throne on this day. And it breaks my heart. I long for you to know the joy of forgiveness of sins and the freedom that comes from that knowledge to have your your conscience cleansed uh, and your body washed with pure water from the Lord that you could be free to live in freedom and in joy, rejoicing in what Jesus has done. I hope that you never stand before the supreme court of the universe, the great white throne, where your body and your soul and your spirit are reunited, where you will stand trembling before the judgment bar. Thomas Carlyle said, what a magnificent conception is that of last judgment, a writing of all the wrongs of the ages. And I plead with you today, don't go to the last judgment. Come to Jesus where you are now. Humble yourself before him like a little kid. Confess your sins to him. Let him know you know that he knows what you've done and you know they're wrong and ask him to forgive you. Ask him that his blood be applied to your life so that your sins can be washed away. Ask him to give you the new life that comes from a regenerated, born-again heart so that you can know God and live for God. In verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So it's interesting. There's, there's almost a, a leapfrog of what happens here because we just see the the sea gives up their dead and they're judged by the works that they've done and then something else kind of happens during that time and then there's a conclusion in verse 15. So what else happens in that time between that and verse 14 is that death and Hades which speaks of uh, the death of the body and the death of the soul they're all cast into the lake of fire. They're cast into hell. 1 Corinthians 15.26, Paul the Apostle says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is actually a very exciting thing for us Christians because we've hated death, the greatest enemy of life is death, and death will be done. It's cast into hell. Jesus says in Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So I was alive, and then I died, and now I live forever." And he said, I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, Hades, we often think of it as hell, but really what Hades is, is it's the abode of the dead, um, similar to Sheol. So even good people before Jesus would go to Hades, and there was a, a wonderful paradise side, and there was a horrible side that's like hell. It was a waiting place. So when Jesus died, he went down and he preached the gospel to Hades, and he took the souls of those that were on the good side, took them to the presence of God with him. Uh, the, uh, the, the Hades end, the lake of fire side, uh, that is, um, I shouldn't say lake of fire side, but there's a side of, of still torment. Uh, that exists to this day still. There are the souls of those waiting for the great white throne judgment. Uh, they're waiting there. At this point in Revelation, death and Hades, the grave and this abode of the dead, They're cast into the lake of fire. This is called the second death. We mentioned a few weeks ago that if you are born one time, you'll die two times. What that means is if you only have a physical birth of water through your mom, uh, that when you die, uh, you will die a physical death, and then you will stand before the great white throne judgment one day, and you will have a second death where you're cast into the lake of fire. And it is our longing at Calvary Prineville that you never experience the second death, but that you experience a second birth instead. That you have that mother's birth. Ooh, it was a great day, our birthday. We celebrate it every year with cake and ice cream and lots of presents, right? Uh, But then we have a a being born again experience where you're born of the spirit, John chapter 3 says. Where the Lord comes, he forgives you of your sin. He writes your name in the Lamb's book of life. He takes out a heart of stone that doesn't know God and he puts in you a heart of flesh that beats and can know him. And if you hear the voice of God talking to you today, you can respond to him and say, Lord, would you give me a new heart? 
Would you forgive me of my sin? And would you write my name in the Lamb's book of life? Because if you are born twice, if you're born again, you'll only die once. And then you'll be in the presence of the Lord in paradise. This is the second death. The original Greek says, this is the lake of fire. One man once said, well, I don't want to go to heaven anyway, and I don't want to live forever with this God who would cause such suffering in the world or that would send people to hell. You know, the truth is, if nothing changes in your life spiritually, and that is your heart, one day you will stand before the judgment seat of God and you will get your wish. uh, Rather, not Revelation, but Randy Alcorn, an Oregon author, says that the unbeliever's wish is to be away from God. It turns out to be his worst nightmare. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said to enter heaven is to become far more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. But to enter hell is to be banished from humanity. He wrote that in The Problem of Pain. Our final verse today as we're going through our text, verse 15, Revelation 20, 15. And this is kind of the hopscotch. We got people who are judged by the books. And then in verse 14, we got death and Hades cast in the lake of fire. And coupled with that, kind of the clincher, you know, I'm a homeschool dad and, and doing uh, literature for my kids. We've been learning about topics and clinchers. And the, the instructor in this DVD that we watch says, uh, the, t- uh, the clincher, uh, let's see if I, it repeats and reflects two to three key ideas of the introduction to the passage or the topic of the passage. And here we have this clincher. And I really feel like verse 15 is a clincher because it just kind of boils it down to this point that says, anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the lake of fire. When you're shoeing horses, you trim the hoof up real nice and you get it to shape and you file it down to the right shape and size. You put the horseshoe on and you drive those nails so well. And the scriptures say the word of the Lord can be like well-driven nails. And then you clinch those nails over. You go on the other side of the foot and you clinch those nails so that that shoe stays on so right to that hoof and for a long period of time. And I believe that today the word of the Lord has been like well-driven nails to you, but the clincher of it for you is that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you are going to hell. You are going to hell for eternity. And you've mocked God and you've scoffed at God and you've ignored God. But maybe God has allowed this coronavirus to happen so that we'd have to go live so that you would tune in and you would hear God's heart. That he does not desire for you to perish. He's giving you mercy today in March in 2020. There's a moment of mercy for you if you'll have it. If you'll turn from your sins and confess them and receive a new heart, a new mind, new life in Christ Jesus. If you'll declare him to be your Lord and your Savior. You can almost hear the pen put to pad from from before the foundation of the world where your name is inscribed. Even today, will you do that? Will you do that in your living room? Will you confess your sins to Jesus? Will you do that from your office or your computer or your cell phone, whatever you're watching this from? Will you bow your heart before the Lord and say, write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Change my heart towards you, God. Change my mind. Forgive my sins. Let me live for you. Do a work in my life where you've cleansed me from my sin and set me apart to live for you. Jonathan Edwards tried to illustrate the horror of what we see here. People being cast into the lake of fire. This preacher from, I think, the 1700s said, The pit has been prepared. The fire has been made ready. The furnace is now hot and ready to receive them. 
The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened her mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Now, we as Christians, we read this passage, and it should do something different to us. We are spurred on towards faithfulness and living for Jesus because of this passage. And we are spurred on towards evangelism and the mission of God. A great man named Autry ministered to me in his writings. It is an unworthy motive to preach on hell to frighten people into the family of God. We preach it because it tenders the hearts of the Christian and creates within them a concern for lost people. No redeemed child of God can look through the eyes of the scriptures at the awful glaring destiny of the lost and not have a grave concern about sinners on their way to eternal damnation. The mantle of the prophet falls upon the shoulders of a preacher who can look through the eyes of the great doctrine at a lost world. Years ago, there was a massive pileup of nearly a hundred cars on an English freeway because of Thick fog on one of their busy roadways, cars were crashing into one another as visibility was limited. By the time police had got there, 10 people had already died. And so the police went out on the road and they tried to flag cars down and they tried to wave cars down to get them to slow down and to stop, but the cars wouldn't see them in time and they'd crash and crash and crash and crash. So finally, police started picking up heavy objects and as the cars were coming, they'd throw those objects into the windshield of the cars, hoping that it would cause the cars to stop in time and to be safe. And maybe for you today, the great white throne message has been like a cinder block on your windshield. Maybe it'll stop you in your tracks and get you to think about eternity is for real. The judgment of God is for real. Certain expectation of judgment is what the Bible says. But so is mercy. Grace is real. Forgiveness is real. Jesus' love for you is real. And if you'd come to him today, you'd find salvation is real. C.S. Lewis had a friend named Dorothy Sayers. She died in 1957. And when it comes to the doctrine of hell, she was filled with insight and wisdom. And we would do well as we wrap up here to finish her words. She said, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy especially among middle-aged writers of vaguely liberal tendency to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. One finds frequent references to the cruel and abominable doctrine of hell or the childish and grotesque medieval imagery of physical fire and worms. But the case is quite otherwise. Let us face the facts. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ's. It is not a device of medieval priestcraft or frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah. And it was Christ who emphatically used it. One cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. John Chrysostom, known as the golden tongue preacher of the 300s, said, if we think always of hell, we shall not soon fall into it. Hell is that cinder block or lawn chair to the windshield that gets us to slow down and think about where we are going and what's in front of us. Charles Spurgeon said, think lightly of hell and you will soon think lightly of the cross. He who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will not be sure that he takes believers into heaven. So here at Calvary today, we remember he takes believers to heaven. It's called the Lamb's book of life for a reason, because there is life in Jesus. Would you come to Jesus today and find life? Final quote from H.A. Ironside. Now is the time acceptable. 
Now a gracious Savior waits to catch the first breathing of repentance and answers the feeblest cry of faith. I read that this morning, and as I read it, I had to get down on my knees again in my living room and just let feeble cries go to the Lord of repentance as he would put sin on my mind. I'd confess it to him and just get as low as I could to the earth to just say, I bow down low and I lift you up. I humble myself before you and I receive your forgiveness. And and maybe you would even do that today where you're at. Ironside went on to say, trifle not with his mercy. Hope not for some vague second chance, but close with Christ now and know for a certainty that you will have no part in the doom pronounced in the great white throne judgment. And so as I close today, I know it can be an awkward thing to be in your living room. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we had such a full sanctuary that I had to sit here in the fireside room and sit on the couch next to Kenny Box and the Gardner family was in here and Doc was in here and and, uh, worship was happening in the sanctuary and we're all kind of singing to the TV in here together, you know, and it's like, wow, Kenny, I didn't know your voice was like that. Or, oh, hey, Travis and Hannah, I hear you singing over there. But it was, you know, it was, it was unique. And I know it's unique where you're at. Maybe a little awkward, but it's where you're at. It's where you're at today. And it's where God is speaking to you. And I would invite you, if today's message has hit home, if God has brought his words to bear on your heart, I want to invite you in your living room right now where you're at to get on your knees. What a wonderful thing. I'm sure you, you have a nice shag carpet with extra padding underneath and it's going to be a really soft place. <laughs> but I want to ask you today, if you want to be saved from the judgment to come, if you want to be saved from the lake of fire, if you don't want to go there, I want to ask you to take a position of humility before God right now. And maybe if you're the head of a home, you would invite your family to take a knee with you. In Acts chapter 16, we see that when the Philippian jailer came to Jesus, that his whole house would come with him, that they too would be saved. We see in uh, Acts as well that Lydia, chapter 16, Her whole family came to Jesus as well. We see in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his whole family coming to Jesus. And I would ask you, men of your house or leaders of your homes, single moms, oldest kids, take a knee where you're at. Confess your sins to the Lord. Even if it's just the feeblest, dumbest prayer you feel like you've ever prayed, confess to the Lord that you're a sinner. Confess to the Lord that you know that he's a savior and receive the work that he accomplished for you at the cross when he died for your sins and receive the work that he did when he rose from the dead, that you too will have resurrection power and the hope of resurrection in the future. So right now where you're at, maybe you're sitting in an office chair by a computer It has rollers on it for a reason. You just roll that thing out of the way. Get down on your knees. Push the coffee table out of the way. Make room for the whole family. Get on your knees. And I'm going to lead us in prayer today. It's not some token prayer that you pray it and bing, you you know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo or alakazam or whatever. It's not what this is. I just endeavor to help you make that first utterance to God and to confess your sins. Will you pray with me today if you've bowed the knee?